Second Peter chapter three, verse 16, Peter says this. He says, there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. This passage is one of the most difficult of Paul's writings. It's one of the most difficult to interpret in the New Testament, and therefore, it's one of the most hotly contested passages in the New Testament. The reason that this passage is so hotly contested and debated is because there's this convergence in it of theology and also cultural application that's taking place, and, it, and it's hard to know kind of what's what, what's cultural, what's theological, and either way... It's all taking place in a context in which Paul's writing, first century Corinth, that feels both very historically and geographically far away from where we live today. And as I read it, you're possibly going to bristle at what Paul says. And I'll say that's perhaps especially true if you're a woman. You're also going to wonder what exactly he is saying at times. But I hope as we traverse the text together, we'll find that it's actually quite relevant for us, and we'll find that as we're forced to bring the application into our own modern cultural context, which again is very different from the ancient world in which Paul is writing. What I want you to know up front before I read it is that as we get to chapter 11, Paul is turning a corner in the letter, and he, he's been addressing sort of some problems in the church specific to how they relate to the culture around them and in relationships with one another. But it's been on a, on a fairly relational level up to chapter 11. When we get to chapter 11, he, he actually begins to address how they're actually worshiping together and some issues that are affecting negatively the worship of the church, their, their actual church services on a Sunday morning and the way that they do body life. Now, we've already been in chapters 12 and, uh, and, and into chapter 15 even over the last few weeks. We kind of jumped ahead. So that was dealing with that. We saw that with issues like communion. Uh, we'll see it was more with spiritual gifts as we looked at last week. But that's what's happening now. He's addressing issues within the worship of the church. And specifically, this morning, he's dealing with an issue that could affect their corporate gatherings as worship services. It has something to do with how men and women are relating to one another and honoring one another within their worship services. So let's read it together. I want to read the, the whole text. It's, it's chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, and then we'll talk about some of the, dis, the difficult aspects of it. He says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or to shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of a woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. All right, so was that crystal clear for everybody? <laughs> if you're like me, there's several questions 
that immediately pop up as you read through that text. I think of at least nine that popped up for me. First one, this, what is meant by head? Is Paul talking about a a physical head or is he talking about some kind of a metaphorical head? Secondly, what are the head coverings that he's referring to here? Is it some kind of veil or a shawl or is he talking about hair? Thirdly, why would he be so concerned with the length of our hair if that's what he's talking about? Fourthly, is Paul saying that men are made in the image of God, but women are not? Is he saying women are inferior to men? Fifth, is he talking about men and women in general? Or more specifically, married men and women? Sixth, what is the symbol of authority in verse 10, and what do angels have to do with it? Seventh, what's the relationship between nature and gender expressions, as he mentions near the end? Eighth, is this issue, whatever it is, a uniquely Corinthian problem? What do other churches, like he mentions in verse 16, have to do with anything? And then ninthly, are we dealing with a purely cultural argument here? One that may or may not have anything to do with us today. Or is there a universal theological argument being made here? I actually thought of one more question. Maybe this is most important of all. Bill, why would you choose to preach this on Valentine's Day? (laughs) I didn't. It just lined up that way. Listen, whatever Paul is arguing here, we'll discern it by understanding that he's actually coming at this issue from three different angles. He's coming at it from a cultural angle. He's coming at it from a theological angle. And he's also coming at it from, from, from what he calls nature. Look at nature. Another way you might say that, I think what he's trying to get at is just some basic common sense, things that you observe around you. So let's look at these three arguments, the, the cultural, the theological, and the, the natural ones, and uh, we'll try to figure out what's going on in the text. So here's the, here's the cultural argument, number one. And I want to start by giving you what is, I think, the simplest explanation of the passage that I've read. I think this interpretation uh, makes sense, at least in explaining the cultural concerns that Paul might have here with the wearing of or the not wearing of head coverings in Corinthian worship services. This explanation will also provide us with some helpful context to shed light on the the nature of what the head coverings are or were, the typical use of those coverings by men and women in Corinth, and then why it could pose a potential problem for the church in their worship services. So look again at verses 4 through 6. He says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head." All right, so one of Paul's great concerns throughout the letter, we've, we've noted this week in and week out, has been that there's this syncretism that's been happening between the church and the pagan culture around them, right? The church has been, has been adopting the cultural uh, values, the cultural norms, the cultural values. They've been living and looking like the pagan culture far too much because they've forgotten who they are. They've forgotten that they have this new identity in Christ. They are the redeemed people of God through Jesus. So Paul's been chastising them quite a bit for saying, look, you're still of the world too much in your pursuits of social status and and partisanship and self-interest. So that's, that's what's been going on, right? In the Corinthian culture and in, in ancient Roman culture in general, it was not typical for a man to wear a head covering. It was not typical for a man to wear a head covering. It was typical for a woman to do so. And the head covering that women wore was more like a shawl 
than like a veil. In other words, it wasn't like, uh, like we were kind of familiar of thinking about maybe uh, uh, Muslim women in the Middle East who wear that, the full covering. You can kind of see the eyes. It wasn't like that. It was more like a shawl. If you think about maybe uh, artistic expressions of, of, uh, of Mary, maybe, where she's got like the scarf over her head, that, that's more like what was being worn by the women at that time. And that, that shawl, that veil, that covering served as a, a symbol, really, of modesty. It served as a symbol of authority that basically communicated to other people, I'm not available, okay? I'm not available. I'm not on the market. I'm not looking for you know, sexual advance or, 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 or your, you know, relational uh, pursuit of me. That's what it would basically say. In some senses, that it's not a direct correlation. In some ways, it's kind of like a wedding ring might be viewed today, right? You see a woman with a ring, you know she's not available, right? Or if you are an unmarried woman, it was still very appropriate for, uh, for women to wear this kind of head covering in a, in a way to say, I'm not loose. Uh, in, in that sense, and this is even a weaker analogy, but maybe more like a, like a purity ring or, or at the very least modest apparel that's not sort of uh, overtly sexy trying to invite attention. So again, it was very common for women to wear this kind of head covering. Now, there were exceptions to the rule for both men and for women. Caesar Augustus in Rome started to pull his toga up onto his head, kind of like that, that, that shawl would be, during certain formal rituals. And when he started doing that, the practice caught on with other men who wanted to be seen as important, like Augustus. So they would flip their togas up on their heads during pagan rituals in Corinth, and it was really sort of like a status symbol, right? I want to be like Caesar. Hey, check me out, right? It was a status symbol for men to do that. So it makes sense, if we have that in mind, to read this and see that Paul is saying something to those men and saying, look, that, that's not appropriate, Men, don't wear a head covering in church. That's what the pagans do when they go to the temples and do their false worship. It's self-aggrandizing status, right? It's, it's, it's syncretistic. Why would you want to worship as the pagans do? This dishonors Christ. On the other hand... Pagan women who did not wear a head covering in public, in public, were broadly seen to be communicating, as I said before, a sexual looseness. So free-flowing hair on a woman in public was a common symbol, actually, of prostitution, especially in, as it related to the temple services. Or if a man was seen walking down the street with a woman with an uncovered head, it was often assumed that he was with his mistress and not his wife. An adulterous woman, on the other hand, could have her head shaven as a, as a public sign of humiliation for her infidelity, which is why Paul talks about, you know, shaving your head here. Whatever the case, it was shameful for a modest woman to have her head uncovered in public. Now, married or modest women would not need to wear a head covering in the privacy of their own homes. And that might explain why some women in the Corinthian church might not have been wearing head coverings when they were gathering for church. The gatherings of the church oftentimes met in homes. So maybe they felt free to have their heads uncovered in the home and in the church because they didn't see much of a difference between the two. Or it's possible that this was another expression of their freedom in Christ, which we've seen him address issues of, of Christian liberty before in the letter. Paul had already said in Galatians chapter 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so therefore, the women in the church may have felt that they didn't need to ascribe to these cultural norms of head coverings, 
as women who now had Christian liberty. So whatever the case, it would again make sense for Paul to counter this thinking by saying, no, an uncovered head on a woman communicates something. It communicates something that that sexually loose pagan women do. And church gatherings, regardless of whether they're in the home or not, are public gatherings. So this exercise of your freedom is also self-aggrandizing. And it's syncretistic. Why would you want to do that in the church? It's distracting to your brothers and sisters in Christ to see your head uncovered because they're thinking about what it may or may not communicate. It's dishonoring to your husbands. You're not available, and he's in the room with you with an uncovered head. And it dishonors Christ by worshiping as the pagans do. So, that's the simplest explanation that I've, I've read or heard about what Paul might be saying here in chapter 11, verses 1 to 22. And this is where a lot of people stop, sort of this cultural argument. He's dealing with a cultural issue that was relevant to Corinth, and that's what it was all about. It's helpful to the extent that it does explain some of the cultural context. It explains a little bit about what the head coverings were, when they were used, why they were used, what it communicated. It at least fits in some of the the broader concerns that Paul's already expressed about cultural syncretism. But I'm afraid this explanation doesn't quite go far enough. It's too simple. If if Paul were simply making a cultural argument here, perhaps it would go far enough, but he's not just making a cultural argument here. He's also, and I think he's primarily making a theological argument here. And he roots that argument in the creation account of Scripture. And he does that because I think he's trying to communicate. It says something more fundamentally significant about the nature of gender differences. So this is the second thing, the second angle, the the theological argument. Look at verse 3 again. He says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Go down to verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from the woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And that is why... A wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So clearly, we read those verses and we say, there's there's more at stake here for Paul and for the Holy Spirit who's inspired Paul than just some kind of cultural argument. What, What does he mean here? What are we to make of these verses? Well, in verse three, Paul is obviously not talking about physical heads. He's talking about some kind of a metaphorical head. The head of every man is Christ, right? The head of of every woman is her husband. Every wife is her husband. And the, the head of Christ is God. He's talking about some kind of metaphorical head. But what does he mean? This has been very, uh, again, heavily debated by scholars. What, is, what does this head represent? And there's two interpretations that have been given the most attention. The first is that head means something like source, source. Perhaps you've heard this explanation before, because I think this one gets a lot of play in our, in our modern day. Source, like as in source of a river, by the way. If we read verse 3 this way, in light of the creation account in Genesis, we can understand that Christ is the source of man, since man, or Adam, as with all other created things that were made before him, were made through Christ. John chapter 1 says this. Also, Paul has already said this in chapter 8 here of 1 Corinthians. And God did this by forming Adam from the dust of the ground, right? He was made through Christ. 
The woman, Eve, in the Genesis account, was, was made, however, by God fashioning her from Adam's rib. So in that sense, man is the source of the woman. The word woman, in fact, means from man. So, so far, so good. If we follow the, the Genesis creation account, we shouldn't have any need to take issue with this use of source as the interpretation of head in verse 3. But there is a problem that comes up when we read the last part of the verse. And the head of Christ is God. If we read that as source, we run into a pretty big theological problem. Christ is eternally coexistent with the Father. He has no source. So I don't like that word. I don't like that interpretation. The other most common interpretation of head in verse 3, and the one that I'm prone to take myself, is that head means something more like preeminence or foremost. Now I want you to note when I say that, it's not the same thing as supremacy, okay? Which implies a necessary inferiority of one to the other. It's not that. But this idea of, 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 of preeminence or foremost in the relationship. Christ is not inferior to the Father, but he does defer to the Father's order of preeminence in their relationship. Let me give you a couple of examples. John 5.30, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Or Matthew 26, 39, Jesus says, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. There's this deference that Jesus gives, though he exists equally with his Father, a deference that he gives relationally in, in the way that they interact, in the way that he, he considers his Father to be foremost relationally. So I want to remind you that Joey brought this up. I think it was really important last week in his message. He talked about the Trinitarian relationship, the eternal Trinitarian relationship, and how there is unity in that relationship. They are equal, right? But there's also diversity in that relationship. They have, they have different functions, if you will, in the way that they uh, relate to one another and to the world. That's a significant image that we have to keep coming back to and holding on to. In fact, you might have noticed that we, we, we already sang Holy, 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 which is a very Trinitarian song at the beginning of the service. And we're going to sing two more songs at the end that they're pretty heavily Trinitarian. That's on purpose because I want us to keep our focus on that relationship. It's significant to the way we think about passages like this. In other words, there is a ontological sameness equality in the relationship of the Trinity, even as there's an economic diversity. And similarly, we can think of this relationship between a, a husband and a wife uh, very much the same way. She's not inferior to her husband, nor is any woman inferior to any man. But what Paul is stressing here, and the biblical creation account is instructing, is for her to defer to his foremost position in the relationship with one another because of God's design, his order in creation. Verse 7 again, for a man ought not to cover his head, for he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. A man was not made from woman, but a woman from man. Neither was a man created for woman, but a woman for man. He's, go he's going back to Genesis 2, and he's tying cultural matters to created norms and theological principles here to show that this, this discussion cannot simply be limited to just first century social practices. The wearing of veils in Corinth communicated something to people about the nature of the relationship between men and women. And I think what Paul's saying here is he's saying that's a good thing. Because it's actually rooted in a real difference in function between the sexes that God purposefully ordained from the beginning. 
Now, there's some hard stuff here to sort through, and I want to I sort through it. Notice in verse 7 that Paul speaks of the man as being the image and the glory of God, and of the woman as being the glory of man. Note this, Paul is in no way denying that both women and men are made in the image of God, which is what Genesis 1.27 absolutely affirms. But I think what he's doing here is he's making a distinction. He's making a distinction here uh, in the way that males and females give what he, what he uses, the word he uses is, is glory. How they give glory. So what does he mean? The word glory here means something like honor. And because the woman was created for the man, he says, as God's gift to be his helper, which is what it says in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 and in verse 20, she's his helper. There's a particular calling in bringing glory, as he uses it, or, or honor to the man that the woman uniquely has. Because she is his helper... There is a leadership authority that he has from God in the relationship which she is to honor. Look again at verse 10. He says, that's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. And then he adds, because of the angels, which we'll get to in a second. But what's this symbol of authority? The symbol of authority in this case is the, is the head covering. In their context, it's the head covering. It's this outward sign of an inward submission to God's good order in creation. Now you say, what about the angels? What does that mean? Well, that's another hotly debated question, and there's several answers, but I'll just give you what I think is the, I think is the right one. I think what Paul is saying ultimately is that there are angels present in your worship service. So look around, everybody, real quick. Just, just note that. All these empty chairs. <laughs> Careful where you place your jacket this morning. No, I, I, think, I think that's an amazing truth. That, that, that angels are present with the people of God as we worship the King. And angels have a, have a, a, a very uh, familiar role in the worship of the Father. And, and part, of the, part of what angels do, many of them, is they worship, is they, they cover themselves, right? And angels have, 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 have always been believed throughout the, the, the rabbinic testimonies of the Old Testament on as, as having a special place of, of guarding the order of creation, so I think what Paul's saying here is if you're gathering together as God's people and you're not honoring the difference between men and women, you're not honoring the creation order of God's purpose that, that has some kind of Trinitarian reflection, you're offending the angels who are there going, what are they doing? And they're offended because they're the guardians of that order. I think that's what he means by that. Now again, Paul wants to be clear that he's not talking about an ontological difference, but an economic one. Look at verse 11. He says, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of a woman, and all things are from God. So yes, Adam came first, and Eve was made out of him, but every other man that's ever been made now has come out of the woman. You're not independent of one another, and it doesn't then create this ongoing uh, ontological difference. There's an equality here. We're image bearers equally, and we're dependent on one another. He's making that clear, but he's still saying there is an economic difference that remains. And again, I think it's significantly to reflect Trinitarian, the Trinitarian nature in humanity. That's what the image of God is. Unity and diversity. Now, is this passage about married women and married men? Or is it about all women and all men? 
In, in the Greek, the word used for wife and woman is the same word. And similarly for husband and man. So it's hard to know. And it, I think Paul's use is fluid in this text. I think sometimes he means women generally, and I think sometimes he's very specifically talking about wives, and similarly with men and with husbands. It's, it's very fluid, and I would say this. I think the ESV version that we're reading does a pretty good job of delineating between the two. There is a particular application, for sure, within the marriage relationship that does not apply equally to all women. So the relationship between a husband and a wife has a unique uh, uh, a uniqueness to it that's, that's closed off that we wouldn't say any other woman has the same relationship to that man as his wife does and, 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 or any other man, right? Uh, there's some uniqueness here. However, there's also a general principle of honor within the male-female relationship generally that should be evident throughout the church. And I think what Paul is getting at here is particularly where God-given authority is present. So if you're married... There's an order of headship in your relationship, in your home, that the husband has that, he has that role. And therefore, that symbol of authority is a woman's willingness to honor that. Within the context of the church, there's also authority given to certain men, the elders of a church specifically. And I think there's a general call for all the people in the church, including the women of the church, to give honor to that leadership role as well. So again, Paul's concern is not just some cultural issue that we as 21st century Americans can say, oh, that's, that's irrelevant. We should just throw this passage out. There's a theological issue at stake here that carries weight for every generation in every cultural setting. It's about understanding God's creation order for men and women and how that affects our different roles in his economy. Thirdly, he makes an argument from nature. I'm just going to read verses 13 to 15 and make a couple comments on it, but I think his point is that it's more common sense, and I think we'll take it that way too. Verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Here's the question, and then he kind of answers it with this sort of obvious statement. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. Now, I think what Paul's trying to get at here, and of course we can make arguments culturally here about whether long hair is appropriate for men, is it a disgrace for a man. It clearly would have been in his context, less so today in our context, right? Similarly, long hair on a woman had a different cultural meaning than it does today. A lot of women have shorter hair today. But I think, I think rather than trying to split hairs, no pun intended, on that, I think he's generally trying to say there's just some obvious things about observable nature that are clearly different between men and women. And one of those obvious things is that throughout every culture and through every time period, it's pretty typical that men have short hair and women have long hair. And he's making an argument that there's, not, there's more than just a cultural reason for that. It's, it's more universally applied because there's something inherent about God's purpose in the design of men and women differently that's reflected in the way we look. And specifically, he's talking about the hair there being, being that kind of covering, that kind of symbol that a head covering would have also provided in first century Corinth. So I think the point for us is to just be able to reckon with this fact. Nature does give us some clues that men and women are different. And Paul wants us to, to look at the obvious and say, there's a reason for that. God's behind that. Don't diminish that. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in some application. Let's get to application. This is a a challenging passage. The, I think the audience primarily that Paul is writing to is the women in the church in these verses. But I'm going to start application with men. 
and give you this, brothers. Men, honor Christ. Honor Christ, your head, by being good and loving leaders as he is. Again, this passage is not primarily directed at the men in the congregation, but because of the way Paul is addressing the women, there is an inherent call here to true biblical manhood. Now, I realize that when I use a term like biblical manhood, it has baggage. Uh, and, and it's often misused. This idea of biblical manhood or manhood itself is often misused and misapplied. So I want to be clear about what I mean and what I don't mean. What I think the Bible means when discussing the nature of proper expressions of masculinity. Don't mean toxic masculinity, which is rampant, not only in our culture, but sadly within way too many churches as well. The definition of manhood, guys, has nothing to do with whether you like to watch football, drive a truck, or grow a beard, or whether you like to garden Drive a Prius. Read poetry. Those things fall on, the, on, a, on an arbitrary spectrum of a cultural definition of manhood that, frankly, is not at all important. The basis for biblical masculinity can be summed up, actually, I think, by looking at verse 1 of chapter 11. Look up there. Be imitators of me, Paul says, as I am of Christ. Jesus is the perfect expression of humanity, humanity, as God intended, right? He's the perfect human being. However, he was also specifically incarnated as a male, which means, guys, his earthly life was the perfect expression of what biblical manhood ought to look like too. And it's interesting to note that the other time Paul instructs the church to imitate the Lord, like he does here in verse 1, is over in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. He says, be imitators of God. And he talks about walking in sacrificial love as Christ did. And he gives specific instructions there for the way in which husbands and wives ought to relate to one another, which is why I had Albani read that passage from Ephesians 5 before the sermon. That's where he's saying, imitate God in this way. What does he say? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You want to know what biblical manhood looks like? If you're a husband, that's it. That's a huge part of it. Love your wives sacrificially like Christ loves his church. Further, he instructs their husbands to nurture their wives, to lead them, sanctifying them in the word of God, loving her as his own body and being fiercely committed to her as one body with himself. Similarly, the New Testament is clear about how male leadership in the church should properly act. Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, Jesus says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the model of biblical manhood in the church. Peter 
said of church elders in chapter 5 of his first epistle. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Clothe yourselves, he says, all of you with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Guys, here's a summation of what that means. If you are in a position of leadership in your home or in the church, it means this. Be honorable. (laughs) Be honorable. Be the kind of men that lead in such a way that it is not a burden to follow you. Rather, your leadership, whether it's in the home or in the church, should provide comfort. It should provide a safe environment that elicits joy in those who find themselves in your care such that they can give you honor. Not out of obligation, but out of sincere respect and love. So yes, Paul is directing most of his, en- his emphasis here towards the women of the church and how they ought to be thinking about how they're expressing their gender. But guys, inherent in that is a plea to be honorable. Women, here's the application for you. Honor Christ, our head, by honoring male leadership in the home and in the church. I could say honoring male headship if I was going to follow along more so with the sort of the tone that Paul has here. So that's probably better. Honor male headship in the home and in the church. Again, the bulk of his teaching here is directed at you. And I want to say this. I fully recognize this is a hard teaching. Now, it shouldn't have to be hard. But it is hard. Primarily because the idea of honoring the men in your homes and in the church is so often clouded by men who aren't very honorable. The fact is, too many of you are surrounded by men who fall somewhere on the sort of the far edges of that that spectrum of, of toxic masculinity. They're either over here on one end, or they're just being overbearing insensitive brutes, or maybe they're on the the other end where they're, they're just sort of wimpy, insecure absentees. I get that. Or maybe like the Corinthian women, maybe you're operating under some unbiblical cultural assumptions or bad theology that's led you to believe that gender distinctions really aren't that important. That your humanity or your freedom is somehow diminished if you aren't viewed or treated indistinguishably from the men around you. And if that's the case, there's a real temptation to just say, look, I'm just going to do this myself. I'll be the spiritual leader. I'll be the person of honor that others, maybe my children or my sisters in the church or, or myself can look to for biblical headship. But I hope this passage will encourage you that you have a significant role to play in restoring God's intention for redeemed male-female relationships. Our Trinitarian God has created you to uniquely fulfill a role that images the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a way that brings him glory that only women or wives can do. Wives, you're called to be a helper to your husbands. If your husband is not yet the leader that he needs to be, help him. Help him become the man that God desires for him to be. Help him by affirming his leadership in your home. In other words, build him up. Don't tear him down. Help him be more like Christ. You say, how do I do that? Well, lovingly counsel him. Guys, listen to your wives. 
Counsel him, pray for him, affirm him when he demonstrates godliness. And lovingly, show him when he doesn't, but build him up. And if you're not a wife, maybe just women, ladies more generally, you're called to affirm male headship in the church. So support the leadership of the men in the church. How? Don't begrudge them. Don't complain when certain men are intentionally developed into potential elders and, and you're not. If the church is healthy, you will be developed and built up into Christ-like maturity too. Be confident of that. Take heart in that. You'll have an opportunity to grow and to fulfill everything that God wants you to be and to become in ministry. But rejoice, as the angels do, in the fact that it's a good thing when men and women reflect the image of God both ontologically as equals and economically as unique. Show honor to those in positions of spiritual headship. If you do that, it does not make you any less Christ-like. It makes you more Christ-like. Final piece of application, I'll end with this. Honor God's design of gender distinctions for the sake of promoting an order that reveals Trinitarian glory. This is more to all of us and more generally applied, we need to honor God's design of gender distinctions in a way that reveals Trinitarian glory. I'll keep this short because this could be a whole topic on its own, but there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a call here that's inherent to the text for the church of God to uphold gender distinctions. That God created this for a reason. Gender expressions do have a socially informed context. There's no doubt about that. But gender is not a social construct, as our current culture would have us believe. Gender expressions matter to God because gender matters to God. Now, we need to be careful not to place too much emphasis on how gender expressions ought to be communicated. In other words, I don't want us to, uh, you know, develop legalistic rules and systems about hair length or whether people wear dresses or pants or things like that. We've got to be careful that we don't do that. However, however, we should emphasize that there are differences. There's differences between men and women. Men should look like men. Women should look like women. That says something about how we dress, right? It does say something about how we dress. Not just in our gender expressions, but again, remember, remember this whole idea of, of what you're communicating about, about your, your availability or your syncretism in the culture. What you wear communicates something. So again, without getting legalistic about it, which happens, I know, if you grew up in the church in the 80s or 90s, you probably heard all you needed to hear, women, about whether spaghetti straps were appropriate in church. I get that. Okay? However, think about it. Men, think about it. Are you distracting in the, in the, in the, in the context of a worship service? For what purpose? If you're looking for a spouse, hey, look in the church. Maybe just not during the worship service. When we blur gender lines, we blur the image of God. Think about that. We blur the image of God. We live in a day when those lines are being erased. And that is a tragedy. Your gender is God-given. It is not for you to decide. You have a mandate, Christians. 
We all do as humankind. Nobody else seems to know it, but you ought to know it. You have a mandate from creation to fill the earth with image bearers of God. It is not an arbitrary mandate. It's one of the key ways in which the nature of God is made evident in the world. When men and women, in in complementary relationship with one another, reflect Trinitarian diversity and unity that points the world to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And even if the church becomes the only place where gender differences are upheld, and I'm wondering more and more if that's what's going to happen, we must be vigilant to uphold them. I know the teaching is hard. It's hard to understand. It's often disregarded, but it's important. Paul closes by saying, look, if anyone is inclined to contentiousness, to be contentious, in other words, if you don't like this teaching and you want to fight about it, he's like, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. We have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. What do the other churches have to do about this? The church that he's, he's referring to, other churches in the world, outside of Corinth, this is not an issue for them. They get the biblical nature of this. And I think we could say the same thing historically. The church understands this, and we ought to understand it because it is to be upheld. Don't be contentious about it. Recognize the goodness of God in it for the glory of God and relish in the fact that he made you male or female and he wants you to express that in certain ways that bring glory to him. I wish I had a grand crescendo of gospel application here. This is just one of those texts you got to work your way through and I hope, I hope you glean something important and foundational out of that. If you have any additional questions, I eagerly invite you to email Pastor Andy. (laughs) Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for your design. Lord, we don't fully understand all of what this means because we're fallen sinful people. We are are not very good at being male and being female. We're not very good at being married couples. We're not very good at being brothers and sisters in the church. In so many ways, we fail in these things which is why we need to be reminded of some basic truths, and that's what this text is for. So I pray that you'd you'd just form us by it. Help us to wrestle with this. Help us to talk to one another and to pray through it together and, and to discern how do we give honor to you and to one another in a way that brings you glory. Father, thank you for being so concerned with every aspect of our lives that you address all of it in your word. Help us to just be good, faithful followers of Jesus, students of your word and reflections of your glory. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.